The Curbsiders Podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like moral hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Welcome back to the Curbsiders. Hi, Carolyn. Hey, how are you, Stuart? It's been a um, while. I'm, I'm, I'm doing okay. So this is a weird one, guys, because <laughs> you might notice that that Matt is not here, and without our anchor, this ship is just drifting at sea. Um, and you know, it's listen. We did great, and I, you know, I don't. I feel like too often when you hear the term dead weight, it's heard as a, a negative. But I think, um, I think we flew without Wado. I think without him dragging us behind, we actually soared, and we finally put together an episode I can be proud of. So long finally. live the curbsiders. Yeah, farewell, That's Wado. Right. Paul, who's wh- sitting in the dark we, right now? Speaking of which, why do we do this, Paul? Um, great question. Mostly for the money. Um, but if you're asking what we do, we are the Internal Medicine Podcast. We use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. Oh, that's correct. <laughs> and boy, do we have an expert interview for you today. I'm going to let Carolyn Chan, the wonderful Carolyn Chan, tell us Excellent. about who we talked to and what we talked about. Yeah, we have an absolutely amazing episode lined up for you guys today. Uh, we have dedicated this this episode to talking about how do we care for patients in the hospital with substance use disorders. So we're going to talk about a lot of common scenarios that we may see, like managing uh, patients who have pain and also have opioid use disorder. We talk a lot about how important it is to address uh, and manage and treat the underlying addiction, as well as what do we do when you have an individual who's on methadone treatment and prolonged QT. We talked to the fantastic uh, Dr. Melissa Weimer. She is a clinician educator who is a board certified in internal medicine and addiction medicine. She is the medical director of the Yale Addiction Medicine Consult Service. Dr. Weimer has a clinical and research focus on expanding access to and improving treatment for patients with substance use disorders, particularly in the hospital setting. She is also extraordinarily passionate about expanding the workforce of healthcare professionals who treat patients with substance use disorders. She teaches us, teaches us a bunch of wonderful pearls. So without further ado, let's, let's get to the episode. All right, so Melissa, thank you so much for joining us. Um, we're really excited to have you on the show. As is our way, we're gonna start with some getting to know you questions. Uh, and the very first one that we ask every single time would be please give us a one-liner to describe yourself. Great. Um, thank you. I am a 41-year-old woman in medicine, uh, addiction medicine physician, mother of two, wife to a talented artist husband, um, anti-racist, and lover of sprinting on my treadmill, um, who strives hard to improve the treatment of patients with substance use disorder. And the treadmill specifically? I know that's a weird thing to anchor to. Uh, yeah, like <laughs> sprint on the treadmill. Yeah, it's very specific. Um, I have found, particularly in COVID times, that things can get stressful and you need a real outlet. And sprinting specifically on a mm. treadmill is a strong outlet for me. So, so in the BC time, the before COVID, you weren't sprinting on the treadmill? I was, but probably not as aggressively. Mm. intentionally (laughs) so I um, a few things I have a treadmill desk that I've created so that I can walk during meetings uh, which 
go on for way too many hours of my day. Um, and then if I'm just feeling stressed, I can just get on there and like pump it up to, you know, eight, nine, ten, And it's amazing. Endorphin ever, rush and you're good. Do you ever start sprinting when you get really angry during a meeting? Just <laughs> well, as you feel like it should be done by now. Let's get this out. Usually that's frowned upon. Um, my colleagues will usually hear me walking and sort of be like, what is that noise? And then I have to explain and then I explain my setup. I think they've sort of figured it out at this point. But, um, but yeah, generally I keep it low during the meetings. <laughs> What's all this heavy breathing during the pharmacy and therapeutics <laughs> meeting? <It's... laughs> I can increase the incline if I'm really bored. That can sometimes help. Wow. I would love to see a meeting where everyone's doing that. It would be a lot healthier, right? I think the meeting, funnier. it would be funny and it would probably be much more efficient. Yeah, they'd be shorter for sure. Yes. Yeah. So what's your favorite failure and what'd you learn from that? Wow. Um, so when I was a second year resident, I did not get into the ICU fellowship at my own institution and I was devastated. Um, and the thing I learned was that I was not meant to be an ICU doc. Um, instead, I was meant to be an intense physician of a different kind. Um, and so what I do now is addiction medicine. And quite honestly, um, as heartbreaking as it was at the time, that was um, absolutely what was meant to happen in my life. That seems to be a recurring theme. Yeah, that great answer. And it's something that has come up before where, where you ended up was not where you initially planned to go, but you're incredibly happy where you are. Not that I'm going to put that on you necessarily, but you seem to be. Yes, I'm very happy. And I mean, I think I would have been happy doing ICU medicine as well, but um, it was really an opportunity to rethink things. And uh, that is hard when you kind of have your mindset on something, but in that rethinking, it really opened up a lot of doors for me. I'm sorry, Paul. I just have to ask this. I'm so, 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 so sorry. I'm going to say it ahead of time. Hey, Melissa, do you know what the most intense kind of physician is? No. A wilderness medicine physician. I don't know. I think addiction medicine might be more intense. <laughs> no, no, no. They're actually intense. Ah, uh, yes. We don't see our, well, actually, sometimes we do see our patients in tents. So I might challenge that answer. <laughs> we, we can edit around all this, by the way. And on that note, um, what is a book that every physician should read? So I was uh, struggling a bit with this um, because I don't read a lot. Um, for pleasure. <laughs> uh, I know a lot of people who do, and it's just, uh, I just don't have the time. But um, there is a book that I love that um, for me was um, important to help me think about living more in the moment, and that is Pilgrim at Tinker Creek by Annie Dillard. Uh, um, it's my all-time favorite book. That's such a great book. Even the first sentence of that book is like, so amazing. I don't, I like, I remember the first sentence of that book. I can't say I remember the first sentence of any other book. <laughs> well, you know, call me Ishmael, but, um, but yeah, there's, I, I think that like, is the prologue or the first chapter where she talks about her cat walking on her and leaving bloody footprints like yes. rose petals? Like, it's just, yes. it's so, it's so beautiful. It is. What a, 
And it uh, was uh, written about my home state, Virginia. Um, so that also kind of makes it dear to me. All right. Excellent choice. High recommend. Um, so that'll be my pick of the week. And <laughs> we could transition. Um, Stuart, do you have any anything that has been entertaining you or that you've been enjoying recently? Oh, I've just been uh, binging on The Last Kingdom on Netflix. Love the uh, interplay between the Saxons and the Danes and the historical references. I'm a huge Dark Ages and uh, medieval history guy. I, even though it's it, it deviates from history dramatically, it's actually a pretty good series. I am completely unfamiliar with it. It's it's great. It's wonderful. It takes place in I think nine hundred and about nine hundred eighty, give or take, uh, with one of the first uh, Danish invasions of uh, Anglo-Saxon England before the Anglo before the, the Saxons were united, and so you have like uh, four different king, Saxon kingdoms in in England during that time that were um, uh, desperately trying to fend off the Danes, and every single kingdom was was invaded and taken over by the Danes except for uh Wessex. That would have been my guess. Yeah. No that so so you know how it turns out then. No, that's just the beginning. It's like episode one. <laughs> that's episode one? Oh my yep. goodness. That <laughs> oh it's wonderful. It's great. Heroin. I feel like I've gone on sort of the opposite end where I <laughs> I've been watching like mindless, like just good t- television. Um so I've been currently binge watching The Good Place. Uh so it's like this this comedy about uh, what happens after a group of strangers sort of pass away. So like, what is the afterlife like? And it's really, it's like, it's really a fun premise. So if you're looking for something lighter to just binge, I highly recommend it. Is that the one where like the husband and wife are like, she hates him or something? Is that that? No, I, I, I can't remember what it was. It's not. No, it's all <laughs> like four single people. It's everybody is uh Everyone, it's a lot happier. There's I another think nobody hates where, anybody quite where, yet. Where the husband and wife uh, pass away, and they're in a like a ethereal, um, like this uh, subdivision, but they hate each other, and they want to get. And the wife tries to get away from the entire time. I, I'd have to go find that series. It's pretty hilarious. All right. Well, that that sounds excellent. I was going to say the the series where the husband and wife hate each other could be every sitcom on television, but um, the death, I guess, narrows it down somewhat. And with that, I mean, this feels like a, a chance to sort of smoothly transition into our first case. So, so let's let's move on from our picks. Let's actually talk about what we came here to talk about. And, and Carolyn, why don't you introduce our first case uh, for Melissa? Yeah, we have a couple of great cases for you guys today. So for our first case, we have Miss Polly Suds. She is a 40-year-old female with a history of anxiety who is admitted for acute intoxication after she was being found just wandering outside by police. Her urine toxicology is positive for amphetamines, alcohol, opioids, and benzos. The patient is diagnosed with encephalopathy due to polysubstance intoxication, and she appears agitated, tremulous, and screams that she's withdrawing. She reports daily alcohol, heroin, and benzo use for the past three years, and but this is the first time she's actually tested positive uh, for urine tax for amphetamine. And on a prescription drug monitoring program, you notice that her PCP also intermittently prescribes uh, her oral lorazepam for anxiety, and she reports illicit use as well. So, Melissa, our first question to kick it off is, is when do you decide to order an inpatient urine tox screen? Do you do it on every patient? Um, how would you sort of discuss the results if you have an unexpected finding? Well, you know, generally these are patients that are coming into the hospital with some sort of indication where you're trying to figure out what's going on, and you want to make sure that you're addressing anything that could potentially be fatal. So we do it as a universal screening. So every patient essentially um, as part of 
uh, addiction medicine evaluation would generally receive a urine drug test. Um, what you test is important. Um, given the contamination of our drug supply, we usually also test for fentanyl um, because many people um, have are exposed to fentanyl and they may not know. Um, so that's generally an add-on. And then for someone like her, I would probably also make sure that I'm checking an alcohol panel um, and an alcohol level um, because we see a lot of patients who... Um, are repeatedly admitted for alcohol, but never really have any objective measure of their alcohol use. And it it can be an important indicator for um, the severity of their potential withdrawal. If they come in with an alcohol level of greater than 350 or 400, you know, that, that really can um, dictate how you treat them. So I would kind of think of a urine drug test like an EKG uh, for addiction medicine. It's part of the objective information that, that we obtain to guide our diagnosis and treatment. How, and obviously this this will differ. So you, I mean, you wouldn't discuss the results necessarily with the patient if they're acutely intoxicated or acutely encephalopathic. But when the dust settles and you're sort of having the conversation, the patient's perhaps a little bit more lucid. How... How do you discuss the results with them? How do you discuss the, the, the findings of the urine toxicology without seeming accusatory? Um, generally, you know, it's really, like I said, a piece of information. We don't necessarily directly discuss it unless there's a concern, um, you know, that they're not necessarily providing us all of the history that we need. So, you know, this patient, you have a concern about potential benzodiazepine use, um, and that could affect ongoing treatment. So if if when I'm obtaining the history from the patient and the patient doesn't really say anything to me about benzos, I might probe a little bit and say, hey, your urine drug test showed benzodiazepines. Could you tell me a little bit more about that? Um and it's really kind of matter of the matter of fact. Um, and really, when you're having this conversation with people or you're obtaining this history, I think when you're just very open, honest, non-judgmental, I find at least that the people tell you <laughs> what's going on. Um, and then if they don't, that tells you something else, right? That tells you that there's they're concerned for some reason and they don't want to share this. So I might also kind of probe a little bit and say, you know, I, I've i seen that you've come in several times maybe with benzodiazepines. I'm really concerned that this is something we need to address. Sounds like you're struggling with. How can we best help you with that? And and again, people are generally uh, pretty open. No, and I like that approach. I, I feel like I run into this. I, I, I always, I'm framing it in terms of my outpatient practice and particularly the um, you know, buprenorphine clinic, sort of when the urine toxicology is discordant with the patient's history and just sort of how do you have that conversation in a way that does not feel like a gotcha, like it, which is not not what I'm going after, but I feel like it sort of warrants discussion. So I, I sort of like that framing of it for, for that context as well. I mean, I think a lot of the times the issues that, that come up when we're talking with patients are really sometimes can be our own baggage of how comfortable we feel talking to patients. So Having, you know, now being in practice for 10 years, talking to patients about all kinds of drug use, I can, I feel pretty comfortable and confident talking to people and just really making it a normal, 
a normative conversation. But what I see a lot for learners or people who don't really aren't feeling very comfortable discussing addiction, they'll sometimes tiptoe around it and patients will not feel comfortable if you don't feel comfortable. All right. So let's let's go back to our case. So Ms. Suds, um, all time great name, has what looks like polysubstance withdrawal, possibly, or at least it's kind of hard to tease out exactly um, what agitation is sort of what's contributing to her current agitation. So what would be your sort of initial approach to this patient in terms of sort of working her up and even sort of managing her symptoms? Sure. So, again, you know, as much objective information as you can obtain is um, the best. So we have... uh, scales that we utilize um, to monitor withdrawal. Um, So for alcohol, we utilize, typically many hospitals have the CWA AR, um, which is the revised um, alcohol withdrawal protocol, uh, or not protocol, but um, uh, scale to determine how severe someone's alcohol withdrawal is. Um, and then you can additionally, because this patient is also reporting opioid use, um, do a clinical opioid withdrawal scale or a CALS, and you can do both at the same time. Is there some overlap? Absolutely, but they're looking at different factors. Um, so CWA AR is really looking at more of like tremulousness, hallucination, um, uh, factors like that, where the cows, uh, the clinical opioid withdrawal scale is really looking more for like pupillary dilation, goose flesh, um, joint aches, things like that. So they are distinctly different. Um, we do sometimes see people utilize one for the other. And so it's important to know the difference. Um, so really look for those objective signs, um, Make sure that you're treating the benzodiazepine or alcohol withdrawal probably first, since that could be fatal, and you don't want to miss that. Um, So you'd want to start, likely start a benzodiazepine, which is typically our gold standard. Um, There are other agents you can use, like phenobarbital, um, which... Uh, can sometimes is being needed to use now um, because there's some shortages of IV, particularly IV benzodiazepines. And then you want to make sure that you're repleting vitamins, minerals, uh, which are typically um, depleted in, in patients with particularly alcohol use disorder. Is there a specific benzodiazepine that you would use for this patient or for any uh, patient with alcohol or benzodiazepine withdrawal syndrome? Um. Usually it depends on their other labs. So if they come in and they have uh, very concerning liver abnormalities, for instance, you'd want to use a um, benzodiazepine that isn't metabolized through the liver. Um, So you'd probably use something like lorazepam. Um, You'd probably avoid something like um, chlorodiazepoxide. But each institution seems to have their own kind of benzo fave, (laughs) if you will. Um, And uh, the one that I think is probably underutilized, but seems to work pretty well um, for most people is diazepam. Um, The reason it tends to work a little bit better is it's a longer acting than the lorazepam and just seems to not have as many concerning metabolites and things like that. 
I think it's really hard to managing patients who are who are on benzos, um, especially in the hospital. So, so let's say that this patient, let's say that she tells you that she takes benzos for her anxiety and that it's the only thing that has sort of helped um, after she's sort of improving from a withdrawal. So how do you sort of approach the management of a patient who takes sort of prescribed and illicit benzo use, um, especially if they're in the hospital and you're only going to see them, you know, for kind of a brief period of time? Right. I think this is a really increasingly becoming more of an issue. Um, at least we've been seeing more patients coming in with really serious benzodiazepine withdrawal. Um, and unfortunately, sometimes they're using such high doses that we're, we're really giving doses that we don't otherwise feel comfortable with. Um, for benzodiazepine withdrawal, unlike alcohol withdrawal, which has pretty good data for symptom-triggered treatment, benzodiazepine withdrawal, typically in my experience, patients do better with a scheduled taper. Um, the things you have to be careful about, particularly if there's alcohol and benzos together, is that they're probably really going to need a fair amount of the benzo. So what do you feel comfortable giving? These are the times when utilizing other agents like phenobarbital may be something to have in your in your pocket. Um, just to kind of calm things down a little bit, phenobarbital is so long acting that it, it really can kind of help soothe, um, you know, some of that really serious, severe withdrawal. But you also want to utilize your other non-benzo agents um, like hydroxyzine. You can use clonidine as long as their um, vital signs are stable. Um, so utilize all that, that, those additional agents as well because, um, a lot of the concomitant anxiety, fear of being in the hospital can contribute to their overall withdrawal um, syndrome. That being said, um, certainly if they're not getting better, they're starting to have hallucinations, they're really unstable, you know, you may need to consider transition to a higher level of care um, like the ICU utilizing other agents like um, dexmatomidine and, and um, agents like that. And when you're, so let's, let's briefly take alcohol out of the picture. If, you, if you're trying to sort of taper someone off in the inpatient setting um, and you have a schedule, how, how quickly does that occur? Right. So um, it really kind of depends on what, how much they're utilizing and then how long you're able to keep them in the hospital. Um, you know, increasingly we are measured by our length of stay and other factors in many hospital or not hospital, but um, payers may not want to pay for just a benzo taper. Um, so I think you have to take all those things into account. Um, we do generally do the tapers pretty aggressively. Um, so kind of think about what what is the top amount that they report and then you have to kind of get into a sweet spot of what you think is going to be easy to taper, what they're going to tolerate. And then generally we um, reduce the total dose by 20 to, uh, you know, 30% per day from there every day. Um, you don't have to necessarily keep them in the hospital to do the taper, but you would want to partner with their family, get them a lockbox or something else to help safeguard the medication on discharge. Um, so 
there are different ways you have to think about if I'm going to discharge this patient on benzodiazepines and a taper, how do I think about keeping them safe? Um, so whether that's someone giving them the medication or working with a family member or close follow-up, those are all different options. So, uh, so I'm curious, in your experience, how many days on average are you getting people to complete these benzo tapers for someone you would typically see? Not the extremes, just the mean. I mean, usually, quite honestly, most people ex- struggle extremely with these tapers. So when we are able and they have close follow-up that we can arrange, we typically try to facilitate ongoing care in the outpatient setting with close follow-up. And then depending on their other drugs they're using, other factors in their life, we may shoot for a two to four week taper. So obviously that's not happening in the hospital. For patients who've really struggled, who have severe benzodiazepine use disorder, they may need a much longer prolonged taper, and that could be the longest taper that I've helped a patient with, and she actually did really well, was a year. And I believe it. It's, it's, yeah. What what about, let's make this even more complicated and and, um, challenging. So what if this patient said, let's say day two, we, we have a very thoughtful we, we address the symptoms of withdrawal very thoughtfully. We have a pretty good um, scheduled taper in place. And from a an agitation standpoint, they're feeling better. Let's say the CWA, um was 12 down from 18 and their cow score is around four. So maybe sort of mild withdrawal symptoms from the, the benzodiazepines and really minimal withdrawal symptoms from um, from the opiate use. And the patient feels so good that she would just like to go home. She's like, I'm done. I think I can, I, I'll take it from here. What what should our level of comfort be with prescribing, say, like an outpatient benzodiazepine taper? Is that something that is done in practicality? Definitely. I mean, I think everyone's has different levels of comfort. But again, if you can safe help safeguard the medication, have close follow up, um, or complete the taper in say three to five days, then I would say that you know th- there's not a reason to keep them in the hospital for that indication only. Gotcha. And then I guess the other safety question I would ask, and I, I feel like this is more of an issue in the past, but there's, uh, I seem to recall there being a lot of concern about combining, say, buprenorphine and benzodiazepines or using um, buprenorphine for someone who has, say, um, comorbid alcohol use disorder. What, how how limited should we feel by those things? And I know that's sort of a, a long-winded question, but if someone has concomitant alcohol use, um, should that stop us from prescribing um, other possible medications for their substance use disorders? Um, I think that you should think about, you know, ways that you can get that person some treatment for their alcohol use or their benzodiazepine use, support them in other ways, but I would not stop their buprenorphine. I would absolutely continue it um, because we know that there's such a benefit um, for mortality and so many other factors with buprenorphine. So um, that doesn't mean you shouldn't monitor them. You shouldn't try to work with them to abstain from alcohol or benzodiazepines, but um, we do not stop the buprenorphine in those cases. I would just say, you know, thinking of agents you could use for the alcohol would be a campersate or disulfiram. Um, naltrexone is obviously a great medication for alcohol use disorder, but um, because it's an opioid antagonist, you can't utilize it with buprenorphine. 
Okay, excellent. Carolyn, was there anything else out of this case that you had any questions about? Yeah, I'm we... a little bit curious. I feel like there's so much overlap actually between the way we treat benzo uh, withdrawal and alcohol withdrawal. Do you, do you approach them really different, truly differently? I, I feel like we're using a lot of the same medic. We are using a lot of the same medications, you know, in terms of thinking about the taper and I think I'm supposed to say yes, <laughs> but honestly, um, I don't really because I don't. I, I so the CYAR is not validated for benzodiazepine withdrawal. Just to be clear, there is something called a CYAB, which was meant to be utilized for for benzodiazepines, but honestly, it's not really that different. Um, so, you know, I do typically kind of utilize the CWA AR, um, for that purpose. However, like I said, generally patients who are using high dose benzos, I think the difference would be those are patients who really are likely going to need a taper as opposed a benzodiazepine taper, as opposed to someone with an alcohol use disorder we can get them through acute withdrawal, typically, you know, three to seven days worst case. Um, and they don't necessarily need a taper unless you needed to utilize really, really high doses of benzos. And so now you're concerned that, you know, you have to taper what you were giving them. I think in general, we probably, for many patients, kind of overutilize benzos for withdrawal. The American Society of Addiction Medicine just came out with a new guideline um, for the treatment of alcohol withdrawal. And in that guideline, they point out the opportunity we have to reconsider or consider more strongly ambulatory detoxification. Um, so I think that particularly as our hospitals are so full, um, we want to make sure patients are staying safe. So ambulatory detoxification may be an opportunity for us to really rethink how could we keep patients safe, still have good outcomes, but, but keep people out of the hospital. Um, so there's some, some newer literature, some different protocols that you can utilize. All right. Excellent. In the interest of time, let's, let's move on to case two. All right. Uh, and Dr. Brigham, I've been missing your sweet baritone. Absolutely. Um, I'll go ahead and why don't you regale us butcher so this one. Be like going home again. All right. So we've got Mr. Evan Doral is a 25-year-old male with past medical history of opioid use disorder, IV drug usage, is admitted to the hospital for multiple epidural abscesses. And so I actually put the emphasis on the wrong syllable so it didn't uh, copy over to the epidural. Did that just for you, Paul. As well as a splenic abscess, status post, uh, IR-guided drain placement. He has started on IV antibiotics, and neurosurgery takes him to the OR for debridement of his abscesses. Afterwards, he still has 10 out of 10 pain despite receiving 10 milligrams of IV morphine every four hours. He reports interest in engaging in treatment for his opioid use disorder at discharge, but reports that he is in too much pain to think too far ahead. Infectious diseases recommends an eventual six-week six course of IV antibiotics with a PICC line. So for this patient, how would you approach managing his post-op pain and his underlying opioid use disorder? Thank you for this case and for that important question. Um, so I will say that 
my training has really helped me turn this idea on its head. Um, so when I started training, the uh, kind of you know, adage was patients who have pain can't have opioid use disorder. If they have pain, it's sort of protective. Um, they won't become addicted um, or have addiction. And, and we now know that that's not really true. Um, so the, the training and my experience has shown that if we treat the opioid use disorder and the pain together, concomitantly, we will have the best results. Um, and I would um, challenge you to say that actually, we have to treat the opioid use disorder before anything if we ever expect to get the pain under control. And the reason is that the patients who um, use heroin and fentanyl analogs have extremely high opioid tolerance. So the typical medications we use are just really not sufficient. And they're not long acting enough to really settle that down to treat the opioid debt that has occurred. Um, so for this patient, you know, I would want to talk to him about the different options. I would want to start those directly in the hospital. Ideally, I would like to start them before the surgery because we see that patients have better outcomes um, if we're able to kind of settle things down um, before any type of surgery. And then we um, also want to utilize multimodal treatment with um, other agents such as gabapentin, uh, scheduled acetaminophen, NSAIDs, um, ketamine can be really helpful in these cases. Um, probably not in this case necessarily um, because it's epidural space, but if this were, say, a septic knee, you could think about like a nerve block, things like that. Um, these, all of these medications and treatments can help get the pain under control. I'm a little, I'm curious. So I feel like so often um, I'll like see it, I'll get a patient, you know, right before they're going to go to the war, I'll inherit them or they're coming up from the ED and they're already on pain medicines. You know, they've been getting, they've been getting pain medicines, you know, cause they, they have real pain. And, and I always struggle to think about, can I start, you know, is it really safe to start Suboxone if someone's already on opioids and, and that risk that precipitating withdrawal? I'm curious how you sort of manage that if a patient's open to that option. It does sound like the ideal choice. Right. So unfortunately, if they're already on opioids and they're coming to you, you know, started on them because they were having severe pain, um, buprenorphine in that acute setting is probably off the table right away. Um, that doesn't mean you couldn't switch to it later. Um, so that would generally leave you with methadone as um, a treatment option. Um, so, and that would be totally fine standard of care to start them on methadone. Um, if, you know, they were adverse to methadone for some reason, you could in the hospital utilize a longer acting, um, opioid agent. But in my experience, methadone is actually one of the most effective medications to quickly treat opioid withdrawal. It's, and I, I think where I struggle is actually on the other side of things, too. So you have someone who's post-op and they're having significant pain, and obviously you can't deny that, and maybe even interested in treatment for substance use disorder, but you have to get buy-in for the period of withdrawal that has to occur before you can make that transition. I wonder if you wouldn't tell me 
sort of, first of all, how you manage that if the patient's open to it and how, how you sort of frame that discussion, because it just seems like a really unappealing prospect, I would think, um, because you have to sort of talk, you're, listen, you're going to be without pain medications. We have to make you kind of sick before we can do this. There has to be a better way to say it than what I just said. Yeah, that is a challenging conversation. Um, so because it's so challenging, because most many patients struggle with it. Um, there are some new protocols you're, we're utilizing using very low dose buprenorphine, um, starting that in the hospital um, where patients do not have precipitated withdrawal. Um, it's been called microdosing. Um, and so you can start extremely low doses of buprenorphine while the patient is utilizing the full agonist medication and they do not go into precipitated withdrawal. Um, it, there is a transition period though of typically of five to seven days until they're able to um, switch to buprenorphine. So generally when I'm talking to patients about this, um, I kind of frame it um, in one way. So I say, you know, certainly if they're in writhing acute pain, I would not probably want to talk to them about this option. I would want to get things a little more stable, um, particularly because, you know, this patient probably is going to be in the hospital for a bit of time while we're sorting out you know, their treatment. So in a way, I feel better because I have a little bit of time to, to sort these things out. So I would get their operative pain under control or post-operative pain under control and then, um, you know, offer them methadone in the meantime and then consider switching to buprenorphine at a later point. Um, but once I get to that point where they're more stable then the way that I usually talk to patients about it is I say, would you like to, to do this quickly and kind of like rip the Band-Aid and we kind of, it's, you know, probably going to be eight to 12 hours where you're not going to have exposure to an opioid. We're going to give you lots of other stuff. Or would you like this to be a much more gradual process? And patients typically kind of know where, how they're going to do, like which one's going to be better for them. And what is, is there, obviously this is going to be individualized to patients, but when you say help them with other stuff, like um, practically speaking, what does that other stuff often look like? Usually we're utilizing, so in that period of opioid abstinence, we're utilizing clonidine, um, hydroxyzine, scheduled Tylenol, NSAIDs, um, those sorts of agents. Gotcha. We may use a, a low-dose benzodiazepine if there's a lot of anxiety as well. Um, that's one of the the times that we, you know, may utilize a benzodiazepine for that specific purpose. So very helpful. Let's, let's make him more complicated too. So let's say as we're, you're getting your Mr. Durrell's discharge, you feel good about things, you have him in a good place and you get a page from the nurse that's taking care of him um, saying that they noticed Mr. Durrell actually injecting drugs in his room. So obviously there's going to be hospital policies, but let's just take that out of the way. In terms of your initial approach, you go to actually talk to the patient. Um, how, how do you care for someone who, who might be actively using drugs while in the hospital? Great question um, and a question and situation that is um, always, I think, distressing to uh, all providers and care teams. So um, I think it is important to have a framework of how to address this. Usually this to me, uh, drug use in the hospital is a sign that we're not 
something's going on that we're not addressing fully. Um, and so for me, it's an opportunity to go to the patient, talk to them about um, what's going on. Are they having a strong opioid craving? Are they having severe pain? Are they um, uh, triggered to use because something, somebody just talked to them on the phone and they got really stressed out and they didn't know how to address it? Um, you know, what, what additional information do I need? So honestly, when, when I think it's important how you approach this, um, again, everything we do in addiction medicine has to really be careful about the baggage we bring to it. So being as incredibly non-judgmental as you can, even if you don't like the behavior, you still need to support this patient because this is a sign that something's going on that we can address. So talking to the patient, getting their story, not being judgmental about it, offering help. And if they say, I don't want your help, you know, you gave me methadone, it's not working. I don't want that methadone anymore. I'm done with this hospitalization. I just need to leave. Then I say, okay, I hear you. Um, do you need some more methadone before you go? Are you sure we can't offer anything else that might help you? Can I, um, are you going to be safe? How do I keep you safe? Then we think about um, what are the things that this person might need to stay safe? So do they have naloxone, for instance? Um, do they have a safe place to go? Do they have a clean water source if they're going to inject drugs? Do they have clean needles? Do they know where to get them? Um, all of those sorts of things. So I go through that whole gamut. Many times, honestly, they'll kind of, as I go through that, they'll sort of, they'll say, well, I'm not going to do that. Or, you know, the, the situation will sort of diffuse just the longer you talk to them in a very nice way. Sure. It's exhausting. Um, yeah. <laughs> They're like, please stop talking. <laughs> I'll stay if you just stop talking. Um, but anyway, the point being, you know, how can you support them even if that support is to help to make sure that they are injecting safely? Um, so our support can be in lots of different ways. Um, if the patient agrees to stay, then we do typically want to think about like, how do we continue to support this person? Um, so you, you generally, we do recommend that we are taking away the, um, drugs that are in their room. So there generally is a room search of some kind. There may be some sort of agreement that you have with the patient. Um, some hospitals have patients sign these agreements. They are not contracts. They are agreements. Um, and, uh, you know, you really want that agreement to be supportive in nature, not punitive. Um, so those are some key factors of how to address this behavior. We don't typically rush into the room of a patient with diabetes who ordered cheesecake <laughs> and ripped their cheesecake out of their room. No. No, that would be ridiculous. We, um, we, we have other cases to talk about. Um, any, <laughs> any, so I guess well, actually while we're on this one, let's say one, one last one, and, and I'll, I'll not talk at all for the next case. But Mr. Durrell, let's say we, we palliate things. He agrees to stay, have an uneventful course. You feel good about things at this point. Um, and then we're, we're kind of... Getting ready for discharge, and as as we say, infectious disease has recommended six weeks of IV antibiotics through this PICC line. 
for a patient with history of, of IV substance use. So I'm trying to think of the best way to ask this. So what's the calculus that goes into sending a patient home with a pick line versus to a sniff and sort of how, how do you make that determination is who is safe for what or um, and I'll leave the question there, I think. Yeah, another great question, um, particularly as discharge planning for patients with substance use disorders can be very complex. Um, hence the reason that, you know, you have teams who kind of specialize in this because we are encountering these barriers a lot. Um, there are some criteria that we can utilize. There's uh, research, a nice research paper out of um, University of Alabama that created a criteria um, it's called the nine point criteria for determining risk level of discharging a patient um, who has a substance use disorder home with a PICC line. Um, so we do utilize that as a framework to develop a level of risk. Um, it is not a hard stop. Um, if patients have a safe place to go, they are agreeing to the care plan. Um, they are on medication to treat their opioid use disorder. They have someone that they can partner with in their home who can make sure they're staying safe. Um, they are in agreement with all of these follow-up plans, then many patients do quite well, and there is research to um, show this, and we probably are not utilizing this option enough. I think the challenging part is many of our patients, unfortunately, don't have stable homes, so that does create this level of complexity where we would love for them to be able to go home, but if they truly have an unstable environment, it's just really not safe. Um, so you may think of other options such as um, new um, antibiotic regimens that are intramuscular, long acting. Um, could you switch to those? Unfortunately, um, many of those are quite expensive and may not be covered by insurance, um, but it's always worth asking the question. Um, and then there are some other options for infusion centers, um, particularly if the person doesn't need to be on the antibiotics as long, you could potentially have them come into a infusion center on a daily basis for a period of time. And what was the name of the, the risk assessment tool? The nine point criteria. I believe Ellen Eaton is the primary author of that paper. I've never heard of that, which is why yeah. I'm not an addiction medicine either. specialist, I guess. I am happy to share it with you. That would be outstanding. And we will certainly link to it in our show notes as well. Shout out to the amazing ID addiction medicine trained people out there who do just such fabulous, amazing work. So at, we're, we're talking about Mr. Doral and sort of how to possibly transition him into and off of buprenorphine. But let's let's reframe things a little bit. Let's say he comes to us already on buprenorphine and feels like he's doing great with it. Um, but does have these abscesses, um, does need operative management of them. I feel like this comes up all the time. What's the best way to manage a patient's perioperative pain if they already come to you on buprenorphine? And let's make it an even more ideal world. Let's just say that he did not come to you with any new medications on board from the ER. They just magically transported him up to the floor, um, and somehow he got away clean without having any new medications introduced. How would you manage this patient's pain? 
Yeah, another great question, um, which we see a lot. Um, so what I would recommend and what is increasingly recommended um, is to continue the buprenorphine in the perioperative setting. Um, the, the error here would be to stop it, so continue it. Um, there are some different opinions about how much you should continue, um, and we certainly need some more research in this area. Um, some protocols say you shouldn't continue more than 16 milligrams per day um, in the perioperative setting. However, I have had success with patients staying on their typical home dose, um, which could be up to 24 milligrams per day. So essentially, you know, continue them on their buprenorphine get them through their surgery, make sure you talk to anesthesia so they're aware of the potential need for additional um, high affinity agents intraoperatively. So those high affinity opioid agents would be hydromorphone and fentanyl or sufentanyl, something like that. Um, so those will competitively bind at the opioid receptor along with the buprenorphine, um, get the patient through their surgery postoperatively. We would continue to utilize those high affinity agents such as hydromorphone and fentanyl, um, typically at higher doses than you would typically utilize um, so that the patients are getting analgesic benefit along with the multimodal approach. And in my experience, patients do so much better. They don't have withdrawal. They get pain relief. Um, and then you don't have to worry about that situation of getting them back onto buprenorphine eventually. Yeah, I just want to make sure I understand because this feels like a really important point. So you, you've had the most success continuing the buprenorphine um, throughout and then perioperatively adding things that have high affinity. So things like you see so you, you're adding full opioid agonist therapy on top of like a, like a hydromorphone specifically that is something that you would add to their already sort of baseline suboxone. Is that right? That's correct. Yes. Okay. So you would continue the buprenorphine um, as they have in the outpatient setting and then um, add the hydromorphone or fentanyl on top. Um, you may consider if they were taking the buprenorphine as a single dose, you may dose it twice to three times a day to take advantage of its analgesic benefit, which typically lasts somewhere between six to eight hours, um, so that you're getting the, the most benefit out of the buprenorphine. So you're treating the opioid use disorder and you're also utilizing its analgesic properties. This may be a complicated answer or maybe not, but what do you do with someone who comes to you on, on methadone therapy for their opioid use disorder? Do you change, do you change around their pain management regimen at all, or how does that impact what you would do perioperatively for them? Again, we would continue it. Um, if they came in and they were not doing well, such as utilize, you know, using opioids um, additionally, um, such as you know, heroin or fentanyl analogs, we would consider increasing the dose. Um, to stabilize their opioid use disorder and then utilize full opioid agonists on top of the methadone. Um, this would be another instance where you may split dosing. So you may say their dose is 50 milligrams, you may put them on 25 milligrams twice a day um, oh, to get that analgesic benefit. Some patients really don't like that. <laughs> so um, 
it's good to ask them, do you think this would help you? And they're generally pretty clear, you know, whether they think it will benefit them or not. Great. That's incredibly helpful. Okay, great. So let's, let's move on to our last case. And sorry, it was one thing. Um, I think it's important to note that you can make adjustments to patients' methadone treatment when they are in the hospital. You do not have to have a special license or um, certification to do so. It's completely legal and safe. If you don't know how to adjust to methadone, however, I would recommend that you reach out to someone who does have experience, such as the maybe the medical director of the methadone program. The, the biggest issue I see around methadone management in the hospital is people, um, well-meaning, increasing doses mm. too quickly, aggressively, um, and then patients getting sedated at day three to five because now the methadone has accumulated and now they're super sedated. Wow. I can tell you at, at Cashlack Northeast, I don't know that anyone has any comfort with prescribing methadone at all. So if, if we have a dose that we that has been established, happy to continue it. But otherwise, in terms of dose adjustment, I think there's just not a whole lot of physician comfort in, in titrating that medication. I actually manage. So I, I can't imagine that'd be a problem. Run to. What's that, Stuart? I, I actually manage most of the methadone patients in our, our clinic surprisingly. but It's uh, not all heroes wear capes. That is not our last case. We have one last case. Let's let um, the great Carolyn Chan read that one. So um, this this will be our patient. Um, we were calling her QT prolongation. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Just QT prolongation. The yeah. <laughs> uh, the parents were very eclectic and decided to name sure. um, them after an EKG finding. So, so we have uh, a patient who's basically coming in who is on has a history of opioid use disorder who's on methadone as maintenance therapy. Uh, you're actually treating him for community, community acquired pneumonia at this time. Uh, you get an EKG and you actually find his QTC is 513 uh, and he's also on levofloxacin. So you're sort of thinking that this prolonged QT is probably related to this interaction between his antibiotics that he's currently on and his methadone. So at Cashlock Midwest, I also don't have a lot of experience titrating methadone, to be, to be tr- truly honest. So I'm curious, how would you manage this patient's methadone treatment in the inpatient setting uh, with his prolonged QT interval? Um, great question. Comes up a lot. Um, so generally, we try to keep the doses pretty stable because they're at that dose for a reason. Um, That doesn't mean that you can't lower the dose if necessary. Um, QTC prolongation in the setting of methadone typically does have a dose-related correlation. Um, So you do see QTC prolongation typically at doses of 100 milligrams or greater. Um, That being said, you want to check for reversible causes. That is the most typical reason I see um, patients having QTC prolongation on methadone. So are their electrolytes stable? Um, Do they have a new liver abnormality um, that's causing this? Um, Is there a drug-drug interaction like you talked about? Um, I also see many patients who come in um, with some sort of infection or illness. We just see this random QTC prolongation um, uh, effect on their EKG. And so I also don't want to only react to that one QTC. I typically um, repeat it, particularly after we've addressed the reversible findings or or causes. 
And then if it remained prolonged, I would talk to him about the, um, or sorry, her, about the um, risk versus benefit of reducing the methadone. Um, and she may say, if you reduce my methadone, I 100% know that I will relapse. So then we kind of think, well, is it worth give this small reduction for something we think w that will improve to reduce her methadone? Um, and so you just really have to kind of weigh that risk and benefit. Um, if she says, you know, I think I could probably go down to 90 and things would be okay, then I would reduce to 90. So I think, you know, you do want to have a conversation with the patient. You don't want to just willy-nilly change their dose. Um, I think it's cruel to like reduce people's methadone in half or stop it entirely when they're in the meth when they're in the hospital without having a conversation with them. Um, I see that way too much. Um, if you're not sure what to do, reach out, reach out for help. There are professionals, uh, specialists who do this and we'd be happy to, to talk anybody through it. All right. I think that's a good place to wrap up unless there are any other questions from the assembled masses here. This was a marathon, but I, I feel like we did a great job. So Melissa, while we have you here, since I, I, you made about a bazillion great points, if you had to sort of narrow them down to just a couple, what would be your main take-home points for our listeners tonight? I think the thing that we didn't maybe 100% address directly, but that we talked a lot about was initiating addiction treatment in the hospital, which is really vital for us to be able to utilize hospitalization as a reachable and significant moment in patients who are struggling, patients with substance use. So let's use that moment to start these treatments um, for opioid, alcohol, tobacco use. Um, we have really amazing, you know, really good medicines that work really well and too few patients who are ever offered them. Um, and the hospital setting is a unique place where we can really spend a little bit more time, reach a group that may not be willing to come to your typical sort of outpatient clinic. Um, and this could be our opportunity to get them into treatment. Um, anything you'd like to plug while we have you here? Um, I would love to plug um, the Yale program in addiction medicine. Um, we have some cash lack um, hosts who are going to be coming uh, to our program. We're super excited about. Um, and then the American Society of Addiction Medicine um, has lots of amazing resources, um, particularly in the setting of COVID. They um, have created several different guidances um, of all sorts. So I would um, recommend people check that out. Great. Thank you so much. This was really, really helpful. Thank you so Thank much for you. your time. Thanks. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Delicioso. <laughs> Not sure how I feel about that one. Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast and sign up for our mailing list at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. That's right, Paul, because we're committed to providing you with high-value, practice-changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on whatever you listen to our show on. Or contact us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. Special thanks to our producers for this specific episode, Carolyn Chan and Nora Toronto. And to our social media team, Beth Garbs Garbatelli on the Twits, Maddie Morgan on the Gram, and Chris the Jumanchu on the Book of Faces. Until next time, I've been Stuart Kent Brigham. 
And we would be remiss in not thanking the great Dr. Stuart Brigham for composing the theme music that you're currently hearing. And a special thanks also to Claire Morgan of Notterly for editing our audio. And as per usual, I remain Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. Thank you and goodbye. Goodbye, Paul. Goodbye. And thanks to our partner, VCU Health Continuing Education, who's helping us offer free CE credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals. Check out curbsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information.